Dear Heavenly Father, I want to pray the prayer of Moses for these speakers this morning in Exodus 4.12, that you would be with their mouth and you would teach them what to say. In Jesus' name, amen. We got a lot of good questions from you folks. Thank you so much for submitting them. We'll get through as many as we can in the next half hour. I want to begin with the first question, the only question we got about Army's secret weapon. What's Army's secret weapon? Prayer. Prayer. The only question we got about prayer. Is there more power when two or three are gathered for prayer or where a whole church or conference prays for an issue? Does it matter how many pray? I'll take a stab at that. Okay. Um, Certainly there's no limit to the power of even one person's prayer because God is the power behind prayer. Whether it's one person or a group of people, there's no limit to God's ability to answer that prayer. But in a special way, God is looking for unity among his people. And so when two or three people come together in agreement, as it describes there in Matthew 8, I think that's the verse he was talking about, that question, uh, there's special power because the people come together in unity. If you remember on the day of Pentecost, when they were praying in, their upper, in the upper room, they all came into agreement in one accord, and God was able to pour out his power in even greater measure. And so part of the answer to that question is the unity that we experience as as God's people, that enables God to pour out his power in special ways. Next question. How do you explain the way God worked in the Old Testament times using war and bloodshed of so many in order to advance his cause? Would we not cringe at the thought of God working in this way today? How can we understand the God of the Old Testament with the life of Jesus? Or maybe another way to say it, why does God, you know, it almost seems as God is violating his own commandment, thou shalt not kill. Help us understand. Okay. Um, I actually just did a presentation on this um, in uh, Michigan. And it was looking at the, uh, the issue of how God dealt with, um, with, or how God was seen to be in the Old Testament. And um, if you look at the issue of the flood, for example, you might look at the flood and, and say, you know what? God killed innocent children in the flood. Now, how would you respond to that? That God actually provided a way of escape for those who are willing to take it. Now, remember this, that um, the Bible says all have sinned. And if we believe that premise that all have sinned, then all are worthy of what? Death. Death. Uh, it would be like a criminal on death row arguing, how dare you put me to death? Okay? So God has the right to wipe us all out, period. Because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. However, God manifests mercy and grace. Amen? Amen. And what you will find is that very often we will read stories in the Old Testament 
and take those stories uh, and not realize that in these stories that were written, um, very often all the detail of that story may not have been included in that story. We know that if God, the Bible lays out the principle that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Um, if we see, look at the principle of how God acted and apply that principle across the board, we will see that God was actually indeed just in everything that he's done in the Old Testament. Uh, let, me, let me just mention this here. In the flood, did God provide, um, let me put it this way, did God provide a public option? <laughs> what was that public option? Get on the ark and you'll be saved. Those people said, we're not getting on the ark. We are going to choose to go against the word of God. And they defied God. And as a result, they were wiped away from, of, of the flood. Think about Sodom and Gomorrah. Did God provide a way, an opportunity for people to escape Sodom and Gomorrah? Yes, indeed he did. And what did they choose? People chose to stay, and as a result, they perished. If you look at how God, I know I'm doing a long answer here, but this is a, you know, one of those kind of questions. Um, if you look at uh, uh, when God spoke to Israel and told Israel, I'm going to lead you into these lands and displace the people there because of the abominations that they were doing, God said, this is how I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move them out before you. I'm going to send hornets before you. Now, if you're in a city or a country where it becomes infested with hornets, what are you going to do? You're going to leave. The very fact that these people remained in the places that they were showed their defiance against who? God. Think about uh, Pharaoh. How many opportunities did God give Pharaoh through these plagues to repent of his ways? Many, and Pharaoh chose not to take any of those opportunities. So as we begin to pull these characteristics of God and see how he dealt with nations around him, you will read, again, I did an extensive study on this, and I will recommend it to those of you who want to um, look at it. God always gave the people an opportunity to escape before he brought the sword of punishment. Always. Just to add on to that, um, when the Bible teaches that God is a God of mercy and a God of justice, and many people try to divorce those two characteristics from each other, but they're two sides of the same coin. God can be just and merciful at the same time. And the greatest demonstration of that is the, is the cross. The, the death of Christ on the cross showed the mercy and justice of God simultaneously. The justice of the law said that the wages of sin is death. Death needed to happen because the, the law was broken. And, and so God had to be just. He had to uh, be consistent with that characteristic. But at the same time, he was also merciful because instead of letting us die, he died in our place. And so we, also, we see this justice and mercy also in the most holy place of heaven sanctuary, which is where God wants us to go by faith. And so I believe that we as God's people in the last days, we will have the true picture of God's character that we might be able to demonstrate it throughout the world because we will have a most holy place experience. I just wanted to mention that uh, if someone wants an excellent resource on this issue, uh, the best book that I've read 
is uh, available from Steve Wahlberg's ministry. It's called The Character of God Controversy. And he deals with all of these stories of the Old Testament, the destruction of the Canaanites, the flood, the Sodom and Gomorrah, um, at the foot of Mount Sinai, the apostasy, and making them drink the gold, and all of these things. And it does it in a way that is very Christ-centered, very cross-centered. So the book, The Character of God Controversy, is an excellent resource. I think it's important to know that the results of sin will lead to death. It's not a question of if, it's just a question of when. So I don't know why we're so offended God does it sometimes now versus waits till the end. But that's the ultimate result. Did, Next um, question. Dave, can I just yes. add something to that very quickly? I'm sorry. Yes, All, remember this, that uh, hellfire, the final punishment of the wicked, the same question could be asked, why is God destroying the wicked? And the reason will be, as Taj pointed out, is because they rejected the opportunity that God had given them at the cross of Christ. The fact is the wicked are going to beg God to destroy them. So it's their choice. Uh, you know, just a little story. Uh, when I pastored in Wyoming many years ago, uh, there was, uh, I went to visit this lady who hadn't been to church for many, many years. And uh, we got to talking, and I was wondering why she wasn't coming to church. And she says, well, you know, at church they showed this movie on John Huss. And uh, they showed how this faithful man of God was burnt at the stake. She says, and I just cannot understand how God could allow something like that to happen. And I looked at her and I said, John Huss didn't complain. <laughs> that pretty much took care of it. Jesus didn't complain either, did he? Next question. How do we know when to apply the day-year principle to time periods in the Bible? It wasn't used for the 400 years of each, uh, Egyptian captivity, the 70 years of Babylonian captivity, and why doesn't it apply to the 1,000-year period mentioned in Revelation 20, also known as the millennium? If I can recommend another book. <laughs> uh, yesterday I couldn't remember the name of it, but the name of the book is Prophetic Principles, and it's written, it's actually edited by Ron Dupre. Um, it's uh, published by the Michigan Conference, and it has a chapter that deals with that specific issue the title of the chapter is Miniature Symbolization. And it takes all of those literal prophecies of the Old Testament and shows why they're not symbolic, including the seven years of Nebuchadnezzar's insanity. And it shows why we take other prophecies uh, in the apocalyptic prophecies as being symbolic and representing uh, using the year-day principle. So that chapter, it's a short one. It's only like seven or eight pages, but very, very powerful. Can you just give us a teaser? I mean, isn't how how do you tell someone that the millennium is not part of the prophetic prophecies of Revelation? Because the Bible itself already apply, applies the year day principle to the thousand years. Um, I don't know if I should take this much time, but Ivor did. <laughs> He's always doing that to me. <laughs> okay. I now have an excuse. I've got to use my glasses. Um, if you turn your Bibles with me to Isaiah 24, the Bible itself applies the year day principle within itself. Isaiah 24, 
And if you read the chapter, it's talking about the second coming of Christ. There's no doubt whatsoever about it. It's talking about the earth being broken up and the wicked being destroyed and everything. And then when it gets to the end of the chapter, in verse 21, it says, And it shall come to pass in that day, which is the second coming, uh, that the Lord will punish on high the host of the exalted ones. That's Satan and his angels. And on the earth, the kings of the earth. That's Revelation 19, when Jesus comes on the horse to punish the kings of the earth who stand against him. Then it says, They will be gathered together as prisoners are gathered in the pit, and they will be shut up in the prison. Of course, we know that the wicked are shut up in the prison of death, and Satan and his angels are shut up in the prison of the earth. And then it says, And after many days they will be punished. Revelation interprets the days as years. So within the Bible, you have in itself that days in Isaiah means years in Revelation 20. That's, that's one example. You know, there are many other examples where the Bible itself tells us that we're supposed to apply the year-day principle. For example, the 70 weeks. You know, it, it's 70 weeks. Uh, most uh, conservative churches use the year-day principle for the 70 weeks. But then they don't want to use the year-day principle for the 2,300 days and for other biblical prophecies. Uh, so, uh, you know, there are definite principles that we can apply within Scripture to determine whether to apply the year-day principle or not. Um, and I'll just mention one more thing. When you look at the prophecies of uh, Daniel and Revelation, you'll notice that these prophecies are surrounded by high symbolism. And uh, when you look at the prophecy of the 1,000 years, there is no symbolism there. It's a straightforward depiction of what's going to happen. Uh, whereas in Daniel 7, Daniel 8, and Revelation 12, 13, you've got all these symbols that you're decoding to try to figure out what exactly is being spoken about here. So that's another thing that you'd want to look at as well. All right. How about a practical question? How do we retain the experience that we are experiencing here when we go home? Bible says in Revelation 3 and verse 11, Jesus said, Behold, I come quickly. Hold fast to what you have and let no man take your crown. The way that we hold on is by faith and by prayer. And uh, just remember, you know, right now we're on a spiritual mountaintop. And when we go down to the valley, we have to continue to fight the warfare. And the encouraging thing is that when, when the devil knocks us down, if he knocks us down, just make sure he doesn't knock us out. Get back up. Keep fighting, keep holding, keep striving because heaven is cheap enough. Amen. I think it's also important to remember that even though we'll separate at the end of the weekend, we're still united in Christ. Amen? Amen. And we can still keep the fire going by listening to these messages on armybiblecamp.com and audioverse.org. Next question. <clears throat> I think this is based on what Taj mentioned last night about Jesus giving up his throne and exchanging it for a cross. We're told that Jesus gave up all for us. We're told that he died the second death for us. But he's in heaven now. He has his throne and he's with God and will be with us forever. So I don't understand how he gave up all. It seems like he still has all and us. It's a really, really good question. Um, one thing that we have to understand is that before Christ came in the flesh from eternity past, he never experienced separation from his father. They're one, and that oneness is something that we can't fully comprehend. 
But when he became flesh, uh, he, uh, dwell, dwelling amongst men, and then when he went to get Gethsemane, as the weight of the world's sin was being placed upon him, for the very first time in eternity, he felt the presence of his father withdrawing from him. Now, he knew before he came in the flesh that he was going to have to die for the sins of the world. He knew that uh, in his mind, but he never experienced it uh, in a very real way until it was actually happened. And when Jesus was on earth, he said to the people, I'm going to rise the third day. But who told him that he was going to rise? Jesus said, I speak nothing of myself, but whatever the Father tells me is that what I speak. And so the promise of a resurrection was given by the Father, but in Gethsemane, for the first time in eternity, the Father withdrew his presence. And if I give you a promise and then I turn my back on you, what happens to the promise I gave you? You can't see it anymore. Isn't that right? And that's exactly what Jesus was experiencing in Gethsemane. And so that's why on the cross he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He wasn't acting. He really felt utterly forsaken. And by the way, what is the full wages of sin? But what kind of death? An eternal death. Why? Because it was an eternal law that was broken. And, that, and you can only give an eternal death if you have an eternal life. That's why an angel couldn't die. Jesus had to die because he's the only one that's eternal. And so for the first time in eternity, being separated from the Father, he's paying the full wages of sin, which is not just the first death, a temporal death, but a permanent death. And that's, even though he resurrected, that's what he experienced on the cross. And the thing that ought to change us forever is the fact that at that very moment, Christ could have came down off the cross and said, that's too high of a price. That's too much. It's too expensive. Let me go back to my Father and let these have the sin that they have chosen and the death that they have chosen. But Jesus remained there on that cross because he loves us even more than eternity. Amen. Next question. How do you show someone who is gay that the gay lifestyle is not right? <laughs> it's called passing the buck. <laughs> I could have given you a women's ordination question, but I decided not to. <laughs> you can go to my website for my view on that. <laughs> well, I think that the only thing that you can use is scripture. Every question that we answer, we must answer with scripture. Now, some people uh, might not believe in Scripture. They might not, might not like Scripture. They'll come up with all sorts of uh, psychological and sociological and humanistic arguments. There's no way that you can really answer those uh, because it's uh, tit for tat, you know? Uh, so we, as Adventists, need to stick with Scripture. We need to stick with the Bible. And the Bible's very clear on this issue, ultra clear on this issue. First uh, Corinthians 6, the Apostle Paul mentions uh, uh, that uh, homosexuals will not enter the kingdom, practicing ones. Uh, scripture also gives us the example of Sodom and Gomorrah. The legislation of Moses is very clear on this point. Uh, so, you know, the only way that I find that we can answer is with, thus saith the Lord. And also, one thing that we must always remember is that God 
hates sin, but he loves the sinner. Amen. And we need to make it clear that God hates homosexuality, but he loves homosexuals. Just like he hates lying, but he loves liars. And that he died for that. And that we can gain the victory, not only over cultivated, but also inherited tendencies to evil. And that there's freedom in Christ. I have been reading a book by Richard Davidson. It's called The Flame of Yahweh. And uh, it's actually a, it's probably the only book in Adventism that I know that has dealt with the issue of sexual ethics. Um, it is, it, it's, it's very big, it's a huge book, but I believe that in addition to the Bible, there are biological reasons why homosexuality can be condemned. And so there are actually, uh, this book that, that uh, Richard Davidson has written actually explores um, all, of the, all of the aberrant practices of sexuality in the Old Testament and then it shows that um, it shows the ethics behind why why they are wrong. But I would say that if a person was homosexual that did not believe in the Bible, uh, it, you could actually make a pretty conclusive argument that the homosexual lifestyle um, is is dangerous for a number of reasons. And I'm, I'm without getting graphic, but biologically, it's it's unnatural, as you can understand. So there are some other ways to argue this, but. A great book, Richard Davidson's called The Flame of Yahweh. It's an exhaustive, it's a very exhaustive volume, but it really deals with the nitty gritty. Even for heterosexuals, there are many areas in Christianity that, that are not discussed. Um, you know, and it, it, really, it really documents a lot of those areas very well. So, for further reading. All right, I'm gonna ask two questions. They're related to one another. Can we obey God's law perfectly with our sinful nature, even before the close of probation? And if character is the only thing we take to heaven, and if I'm struggling with certain sins, and if I were to die today, will I be able to go to heaven? I've been requested to read the questions again. Can we obey God's law perfectly with our sinful nature even before the close of probation? And secondly, if character is the only thing we take to heaven, and if I'm struggling with certain sins, and if I were to die today... By the way, the person that wrote this question, are you still here today? <laughs> Will I be able to go to heaven? Because this was written last night. You got the question? Well, this is a great question, and a lot of us struggle with this question because we have struggles in our own personal experience. But the fact of the matter is the Bible is very clear that there is power available to us in Scripture. And the Bible says in, in Jude chapter 1, verse 24, that God is able to keep us from falling. In Second uh, Peter chapter 1, verse 4, it says that there are exceeding great and precious promises given to us that we can become partakers of the divine nature and escape the corruption that's in the world through lust. Now, the, the, the challenge is, of course, is learning to cultivate the mind of Christ, where we're constantly responding to the promptings of the Holy Spirit and not responding to the promptings of the flesh. The flesh, Paul says, is embedded in our physical members. It's in our body. It's a body of death. And we're going to struggle with that as long as we're in, like Paul says, this vile body. That won't be changed until the second coming. 
But what we can do is we can cultivate a mindset which is constantly listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit and not listening to the voice of the flesh. So if we've asked God to come into our life, if we've asked him to create in us a clean heart and to give us a a right spirit, that doesn't mean that we're no longer going to have temptations or we're never going to have an attraction or a pull to do something that is not biblical. Uh, That doesn't mean that God hasn't answered that prayer, that he hasn't transformed the heart. But we need to learn to discipline the mind, to focus on those spiritual promptings, uh, to be spiritually minded rather than carnally minded. We only have four minutes, so I'm not sure if we have time for this question, but I'll ask it anyway. Why do Seventh-day Adventists believe they are the remnant and no other Christians are? Seventh-day Adventists believe that they are the Israel of Bible prophecy um, because we have a prophetic birth certificate uh, with our name on it. Uh, That is the uh, 2300-day prophecy. And we understand that that birth certificate does not, um, you know, grant us an entrance into heaven just because we carry the name Seventh-day Adventists. We believe that there are many Seventh-day Adventists that will not be in the kingdom, while there are many uh, people of other denominations that will be in the kingdom because they lived up to all the light that they had. And so God judges us based off of the light that we have and the light that we're living up to. And our mission as God's last day people is to bring the rest of the light, which I will be sharing about tonight at 7 o'clock, the rest of the light to uh, a people who are searching and who are wanting truth. Um, I'll just share this. The Baptist pastor that I'm studying with, last Wednesday as we got together, he said, uh, you know, Pastor, he said, there was a reason why. Every time I'd sit in my classes and the ministers would tell me what to believe, and I'd ask a question, they wouldn't answer it. And 10 minutes later, I'd ask the same question again in a different way. And they said, you just asked that question. I said, because you didn't answer it. He said, now I know why I was never satisfied with their answers. There are people out there who are waiting for someone to bring them the truth of the word. And that is what God has called us to do. What makes the Adventist Church unique is our origin, our message, and our mission. If the church should ever forget its origin, its message, and mission, it would cease to be the remnant. In other words, uh, the word remnant does not apply to a group of people who are better than everyone else. It applies to a group of people who are conscious of where we began, why we're here, and what mission God has given to us. That's what makes us unique. We have a unique message and we have a unique mission to the world. That no other church has that message. But the message is God's. The message isn't ours. The mission is God's. And he's the one that called the church into existence. And so none of the glory belongs to the remnant church. All of the glory belongs to God who called it, gave it its message, and gave it its mission. Also, we stand on the shoulders of great Protestant reformers, 
and we continue the flame of the Protestant Reformation while the rest of Protestantism is no longer protesting. And they are actually making a U-turn right back to Rome. And we'll be the ones that will persecute us for keeping all the commandments someday. And Jesus says, I have sheep, other sheep I have that are not of this fold, but I want to bring them into the fold. Isn't that right? Well, thank you, gentlemen. We appreciate your time. We got through as many questions as we could. Right now, we're going to have a five-minute break. And we'll, we'll resume at 1035. <laughs>